welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello and welcome back to our latest edition of our Arbitral Insights podcast series. I am delighted today to welcome Lord Wilson, a former Supreme Court judge here in the UK. Hello, Lord Wilson. Hello. Lord Wilson is a very eminent legal figure, and I'll just give you a quick summary of his career. He had a very successful practice as a QC as a Queen's Counsel, where he specialised in family law and was a foremost practitioner in that field. He became a High Court judge in 1993 and served on the High Court bench till 2005, when he became a Lord Justice of Appeal and served in the Court of Appeal till 2011. In 2011, Lord Wilson went to the Supreme Court and served on the Supreme Court until his retirement in 2020. He is now based at Fountain Court Chambers, one of the preeminent chambers in London. He accepts appointments as an arbitrator, and given his very illustrious background in family law, uh, he is also being a specialist in that field. He also accepts appointments to advise on and resolve disputes in that field. So it's a real honour to be speaking with Lord Wilson today, and I'm sure we'll have a very, very interesting discussion. And I know, Lord Wilson, I've got lots and lots of questions I want to ask you, uh, and so I'll try to be as uh, selective as I can, given the time constraints we always have on these sorts of podcasts. But welcome again, Lord Wilson. I wonder if I could just, first of all, just ask you to tell us a little bit about your background to joining the bar, a little bit about your education and why you chose law as a discipline. Yes, well, I wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge. I was turned down by five Oxbridge colleges and then ultimately accepted at Worcester College, Oxford. And then the question was, what should I study? And my A-levels, they were Latin, French and history. So I didn't have the Greek to go with Latin to do greats. I didn't have the German or Spanish to go with French to do modern languages. I didn't particularly want to do history. And so by a process of elimination, I decided to study a law. Actually, when I went up to Oxford, I was hoping to be an actor. I had acted in school and people had said I was quite good and I fancied my chances. Uh, The sad thing was that I soon realised at Oxford that I didn't have nearly enough talent to be an actor. And when I was ultimately turned down by the Oxford University Dramatic Society for uh, any sort of a part in their forthcoming production, I threw myself on my bed, almost in tears. And then I said, look, I'm studying law. I know what I'll do. I'll go to the bar and I'll be an actor in court. Now that's, well, that's an incredible background. That's fascinating. And then, you know, when you joined the bar, did you find that it was as theatrical or as dramatic as you thought it might have been? 
Well, in those days, advocacy was more theatrical than it is now. And I think, looking back, I was a bit of an old-school ham. I was rather a flamboyant advocate. And in those days, I used to sit behind my leaders, in particular the great Matthew Thorpe, and I would marvel at the way in which he would spend a day outlining the contours of the case to the judge with literary allusions and all the rest of it. And my own advocacy was rather modelled on that sort of thing. Advocacy now is very different, and perhaps it's better, I don't know. Of course, a lot of advocacy is, is written. And so once the advocate has established that the judge has read the written uh, opening, there may not be much more to do by way of opening. And so I think the emphasis now in advocacy is on clarity rather than rhetoric. And looking back, as I say, I think I was rather old school. But anyway, that's, that's the sort of advocate that I became. Ah, that's incredible. So, you know, that drives us into an area that I wanted to ask you on, because you mentioned Lord Justice Thorpe, who was one of your mentors, who you modelled your advocacy on. In the course of your years at the bar, from your early years to your senior years as a QC, looking back at that period, first of all, apart from Lord Justice Thorpe, as he became who else sticks out in your mind, Lord Wilson, as being particularly inspirational in your career? I listened to three great advocates and marvelled at their abilities. The first was my head of chambers, James Cumming, QC. And then there was James Miskin, QC. And then I've already mentioned Matthew Thorpe, QC. And James Miskin, in particular, had a wonderful throwaway style that really charmed me. It was as if he was talking to the judge in a pub with both of them having a drink and propping up the bar together. And I found that, to keep the metaphor, I found that approach rather intoxicating. James Cumming was a well-known and wonderful advocate. He was Irish and had the most lovely Irish lilt, which, which he turned on for the purposes of the jury to great effect. And I've already sung the praises of Sir Matthew Thorpe. Now, and, you know, just looking back at your time at the bar and thinking at when you became a Queen's Counsel, one of the things that I always, you know, find interesting is what is the jump like from being a senior junior in practice, being successful as you were in the family field for many, many years? Did you find there was any jump or was it a fairly seamless transition from being a senior junior to then becoming one of Her Majesty's Council? To answer that question, I think I've got to go back to the reasons why I found myself in a family law chambers. In those days, this was 1967, in those days, you got pupillage, I'm sorry to say, by knowing somebody who was in chambers and who would see to it that you were, you were given a pupillage. And so I knew nothing about Queen Elizabeth building until the first day that I uh, arrived there, when I realized that it was a family law set, and I was asked to draft a petition for divorce about which I knew nothing. In those days, family law wasn't even an option that one could study 
at Oxford or Cambridge, and I knew simply nothing about it. And I rang my tutor at uh, Oxford, the great Professor Reynolds, who's still alive, and I told him that I was in family law chambers, and he was shocked. He said, Nicholas, this is ridiculous. It's a complete cul-de-sac. It's uh, not a respected area of the law, and your talents would be wasted. You know, you could try and move to commercial chambers. Uh, but I stuck at family law and remained there, as you said, as a junior and as a silk. And for various reasons that I could go into, I found family law absolutely riveting. But when I, as you've asked me about becoming silk, when you become silk, in, particularly in that area, there's a very great deal of pressure on you. Of course, there is for any silk in any sphere of the law. But I was being expected to be brilliant. And I would tell myself, tomorrow I've got to be brilliant in court, or my client, or the mother, is going to lose the Trojan. Or tomorrow I've got to be brilliant in court, because otherwise my client, the wife, is going to lose the house. Or tomorrow I've got to be brilliant in court, because the husband says he has no money at all. Uh, the wife is convinced that he's got lots of money squirreled away. I've got to cross-examine the husband's accountant and prove that he's got money to the satisfaction of the judge. And all those pressures, particularly when you're charging high fees at the level of Queen's Counsel, weighed on me and worried me. I'm a worrier by nature, unfortunately. And to some extent, I, I'm sorry to say, I alleviated the stress by, uh, on occasions, uh, drinking. And that I've had to watch my drinking ever since. But I ascribe it to the particular pressures of being in silk and the particular pressures of being in silk in the family context. Would you like me to explain what I mean about the particular pressures of family law? Yes, please. That would be fascinating because, you know, because of the particular insight you've got. I mean, because I can just imagine there's a lot riding on the outcome of various things. But it'd be great if you could explain that further, please. Commercial lawyers represent hard-nosed businessmen who take business-like decisions about their litigation chances, about when, whether to settle and on what terms to settle or whether to proceed. But the family lawyer is representing a client, a husband, a father, a wife, a mother, who are feeling angry and nervous and perhaps guilty and hurt and in particular about, uh, fearful about the future. And so you're representing clients who can't usually look at it with all the objectivity that would otherwise obtain. And that presents a particular challenge for the advocate. Equally, there's another factor, and that is that you're, unlike most inquiries in the law, you're not looking at it in terms of simply what happened in the past. Other areas of the law, did he murder her? Did she operate negligently? Did he drive negligently? Did that company break that contract? An inquiry into the past. But for the family lawyer, it is very often an appraisal of the likelihood of what's going to happen in the future. 
If these children are given back to her, will she be able to cope? If he is granted contact, is he going to try to poison the children against uh, the, the mother? In the future, what financial needs is, the, is she likely to have? So it's a, a, a gauging of future likelihood by reference, of course, to the past history. And that in itself produces a, a different sort of inquiry and makes different sort of challenges upon the solicitors, the barristers, and of course, the judges who have to combine to sort these things out. But I mean, I've, I found family law absolutely riveting. It's it, when I, you've heard what Professor Reynolds said about family law in 1967, the view now is entirely different. Four years ago in the Supreme Court, I think we had four of the nine England and Wales Supreme Court justices who were family lawyers. And if there is now an increasing realization, not only of the importance of family law, but of the abilities of very many family lawyers to handle not only their own subject, but other areas of the law too. And of course, the financial side of divorce, which was the side in which I specialized when I was at the bar, that requires a wide knowledge, not just of domestic family law, but of trust law, of tax law, of company law, of foreign law. And so I do feel that the demands made on family lawyers are different from the demands made on lawyers in other areas. But to my mind, especially challenging and especially interesting. I mean, I'm very interested in the law, but I'm even more interested in people. And so for me, family law was a wonderful fit. Well, that was incredibly enlightening. And you've touched on something which actually fortuitously takes me very neatly into the next area that I wanted to ask you about. And it, it, it's, it's all around what you just said there, Lord Wilson, that it's very easy to say this is an area called family law, but obviously it entails many different disciplines which ask a lot of you because there will be many types of cases which, as you say, involve areas of law that are very wide-ranging and require you to advise on all of those areas. And looking, therefore, at your time as a judge, and I've already explained in my introduction to our listeners that you rose to our highest court, but you obviously started off in the high court and then you were in the court of appeal and in the Supreme Court, of course. But you would have had to judge lots of different cases. So there will have necessarily been, I would have thought, a number of cases over the years where you were unfamiliar with the, the real detail of that area of law. And I would just be interested, because I find this fascinating when I speak to former judges, as to how they deal with areas which they're not that familiar with, where they've not necessarily practiced in, and whether they therefore sort of put a lot of reliance on what counsel are arguing, what they're writing about in their written submissions, and in the sorts of questions they ask of counsel. I wonder if you could just share your thoughts on that, because 
you've got a very unique perspective, which not many judges have because you've sat at all levels of our courts system. I've explained that at the bar, I primarily did the financial consequences of divorce. When I became a high court judge of the family division, I had to do other areas of family law, and in particular, law relating to children, and in particular, the law relating to whether children should be taken into care. And it wasn't an area that I knew much about. And it was an area that I found very difficult. I found the weight of responsibility upon my shoulders in deciding whether children should be taken from their natural parents very heavy upon me. And I found giving judgment in some of these care cases at the end of perhaps a two-week hearing, when you had decided there was nothing for it but to take these children away from the parents, I found that really rather awful. I mean, if there had been sexual abuse or physical abuse, then frankly, the parents had asked for it. But the ones that really got to me were the situations in which the parents were loving parents, but simply couldn't cope, couldn't get the children to school, couldn't get the children to the doctor when they were ill, couldn't organize their economy so as to feed them properly, too much money going on, cigarettes and beer or whatever it might happen to be, but loving parents. And when you've given them three or four chances with all the support that the local authority could provide, and still it wasn't good enough, then to take the children away from loving parents, I found desperately painful. And sometimes I used under the bench to pinch the tops of my thighs very hard in order to hurt myself so that I wouldn't wobble or burst into some sort of tears in giving the final verdict that the Trojan be permanently taken away. Uh, but there was uh, another, a happier upside to that work, which was the cases in which one had chosen adoptive parents. They came in to see one in one's private room. So the adoptive mother, the adoptive father, a few adoptive grannies and things like that, an aunt or two, and of course the child. And there would be a party in my room afterwards. And I, I would have stopped on my way to court that morning at the patisserie in Queensway, and I would have chosen a cake, and I would have asked the patissier downstairs to type on the words, Darren gets adopted, and can I have a blue candle today, please? And so we would have a cake, a tea, and all the rest of it, and orange juice. And at the end of it, I would, afterwards, I would write a letter to the child for entry into his or her life storybook, saying that I'd met her, uh, her or him, and the adoptive parents, and how lucky the child was to have them, and how lucky they were to have a child, and good luck, and all the rest of it. And I found that, I mean, it's so different from the sort of work that most of my colleagues in other areas of the law were doing in the law courts. But that sort of thing gave me uh, enormous pleasure and I continue to correspond with, uh, I think, four or five of the children that I ordered to be adopted. They're almost grown up now. 
they tend to email me just before their birthdays in order to remind me of their existence. That's lovely. And the, and the, the, the result is they get a birthday card and uh, another £20 note. That sort of thing, I mean, that's, uh, that's something that can only happen in the family law sphere. Now, that's incredible. You know, your story about you know, going to the, uh, the cake shop and getting a cake made up, that's it's very charming, I've got to say. I wasn't expecting that at all. That's really cheered me up, actually. Glad to hear it. No, it's wonderful. Looking back at your long and distinguished career on the bench, I mean, in, I know it's always hard to ask this question, but are there any particular cases in the Supreme Court that particularly stick out for you? I mean, I know having seen you on TV when judgment was given in the prorogation of Parliament a case in the Supreme Court, you were one of the justices of the Supreme Court in that case. But was that one of those memorable cases? Are there other cases that really stick in your mind from your time on the Supreme Court and indeed from the Privy Council in which you also sat? Well, I think you've, obviously, one would have to say that the prorogation case and the earlier case that you will recollect about whether Mrs. May had the power to trigger the two-year period under Article 50 without getting parliamentary approval, mm-hmm. which we'd heard two years earlier. I mean, they were the, uh, the, the biggest cases, certainly the most publicized cases, that I was involved in. I mean, it was a huge honor to me to be in the Supreme Court. I really still pinch myself. I can hardly believe that I I got there because they didn't want another family lawyer. They had the great lady Hale already. But my pitch at the interviews, as far as I can recall it, was now, look, you've got all these really clever commercial justices. Why don't you have somebody from a, a, a different background somebody who has spent their whole professional life in the family court, bringing, therefore, I I would suggest, a different perspective to it. But the luck element in life, the right face on the right day, got me this ultimate promotion. And I had the most extraordinary nine years of my professional life there. And a very happy nine years, by and large. When you've mentioned the Privy Council, would you like me to say something about that? Yes, please, because the Privy Council is one of those things where I I remember as a law student many, many years ago, we'd often read Privy Council decisions in the course of our studies. And whilst they were never binding on the English courts, they were clearly of persuasive value and highly persuasive value, given the breadth of the Commonwealth and the reach of English law. So it would be very interesting if there were some cases from what you heard in the Privy Council, that uh, you could just talk a little bit. Can I answer that more generally? Of course. Can I preface my comments on the Privy Council by saying that I think, by and large, the judgments that come out of the Supreme Court are are pretty good. But insofar as they are sometimes a bit long, sometimes a bit diffuse, sometimes a bit repetitive, sometimes, therefore, a bit disappointing, to the lawyers who have to plough through them. I think that there are two reasons for that. And I think one of them relates to the work that we are required to do as uh, privy councillors. Now, I wouldn't, of course, challenge the notion that there has to be a final appeal 
from the British Islands, from Jersey and Guernsey and the Isle of Man, and from the British overseas territories like Gibraltar and Bermuda and uh, the Cayman Islands to the Privy Council. But, I mean, where I do respectfully enter a question mark is in relation to the appeals which made up almost the entire amount of the work that we had. Appeals from Mauritius, Bahamas, and Jamaica. And what? Well, they've all been independent countries now for 60 years. And in Jamaica, the Queen at the moment is the head of state, although one wonders how long that's going to continue for. The other two, I think, are republics. But whatever, the situation is that it is, in my view, anachronistic for appeals from those independent countries to continue to come to us in the Privy Council. But it took up a large amount of time. And a lot of the cases, important though they were for the litigants, perhaps important though they were for those countries, they were not objectively important in terms of the law and the development of the law. So it took up a lot of our time. I would guess probably that about 35% of my time was taken up with Privy Council work. And that was a hell of a distraction from doing the work of the UK Supreme Court. And so that's one of the reasons why sometimes uh, there can be valid criticism of the quality of the Supreme Court judgments. And if I may briefly suggest what I regard as the other main problem, Mm-hmm. Please. It is that Supreme Court judges don't have a, a set time to write their judgments. At the end of the meeting, after the hearing, Judge A will be deputed to write the first judgment. If it was me, I would say to myself, well, when am I going to do this? Well, I might have half a day tomorrow to start it. And then when I'm not going to have any more time for another five days. And then on Tuesday, I might have another half day to continue it. The problem is, by Tuesday, I'll have forgotten a lot of the detail. So you have to read it up. And so it goes on, adding bits at one point, adding bits at another point. It's a slow process. And I really do think that, as I understand it, the American Supreme Court has a system whereby we will have hearings for the month of October. And then in the month of November, we won't have any hearings with the justices, with their clerks, will write the judgments. And I do think that if I'd had a a better run at my judgments, they would have been better than they were. You know, just on that, I mean, uh, that's, that's a, and again, a fascinating insight from the workings of your time as a Supreme Court judge. In terms of writing judgments, my understanding, and it's a point you just made there about the US Supreme Court, where judicial assistants or clerks, as we may say, assist the judges of the Supreme Court in writing judgments. My understanding is that doesn't happen here. Do you think there might be a role, some role, some sort of role, managed role, for having judicial assistants or clerks to assist Supreme Court judges to deal with the points which you mentioned a moment ago about the lack of time to really do something in a fulsome manner? Judicial assistants were introduced into the last years of the law lords over in the House of Lords. And that system has been developed 
since 2009, when the Supreme Court was created. And uh, basically, each justice has a judicial assistant for a year. So I was there for nine years, and I had nine judicial assistants. And I cannot overstate what a wonderful contribution they made to, to the work that I did and to the, my enjoyment of the work that I did. I made friends with all of them and have remained friends with all of them and are now applauding their success, most of them as barristers, following their departure from the Supreme Court after one year. And they did contribute enormously to the improvement of my judgments, but I would have hated it if they had drafted the judgment. I, I, want the judgment, I wanted the judgments to be me, not somebody else. I wanted them to sound like me. I've got very particular ideas about judgments and how they should read. I'm a, a real old pedant, and uh, I, I, I really would have uh, disliked they're doing the first draft. What I did do was when I'd done the first draft and then improved it into the second and the third and the fourth, or thought I was improving it, about draft six, I would send it to my judicial assistant and he would spend, he or she would spend half a day thinking about it and making notes and then he or she would come into my room and we'd just go through it. And they made wonderful points which have immeasurably improved my judgments. So I think it's a wonderful system. But no, I really would be very much against their doing the initial draft. Indeed, on, on a wider basis, I think the joint judgments are now becoming almost the norm. Justice A and Justice B combining to do a judgment. And whenever I was asked to do that, and occasionally I did it, I really hated it because it's, it's pinning two different things together. And anything that goes out under my name, I wanted, perhaps rather self-regardingly, I wanted it to be me. And on that basis, it simply wasn't. Fascinating. Thank you very much. And I could honestly talk to you for, for a lot longer about all of this, but these podcasts, unfortunately, have a time limit, so to speak, a bit like you might impose upon me if I was arguing in front of you in court, you might impose a time constraint on me. So... You know, I just had a couple of things to wrap up with, if I may. And I think people listening to this podcast will be really enlightened by the insights you've given from your long experience of being a lawyer and as judge. And so many of these things I myself have never heard before. So I've really learned a lot. But I wonder if I could just wrap up with the following sort of more light-hearted things, because I like to end these podcasts in a sort of more light-hearted way. Is there a particular form of music, composer, a group, a singer that you particularly like listening to? Well, I, I like classical music. I learned the piano at school. The trouble, trouble was at school that I was at a school where John Elliott Gardner, Mark Elder and Simon Standage were all there. And those three wonderful musicians meant that my efforts were particularly second-rate. And uh, I've never really recovered uh, from the fact that I was in the presence of three great, great interpreters of music, even when they were schoolboys. Now look at them at the very pinnacle of the classical music establishment. And I still play the piano to some uh, a bit. We go to the opera and we go to concerts. 
but uh, I know very little about pop music, as my children and as my wife constantly remind me. You know, what were you, what were you doing at Oxford? Weren't you listening to this sort of 1960s pop music? And uh, you know, do you know who the singer is? And I have to plead guilty that I don't. And so I'm afraid my musical tastes are very obvious. No, no, that's, that, that's, that's absolutely fine. So, and you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you really loved acting and drama. Have you had any opportunity from an amateur dramatic basis to indulge in that hobby over the years, you know, in sort of amateur dramatic productions of any kind? Well, my confidence was rightly knocked at Oxford. I, I realised that I simply wasn't cut out to be an actor. I couldn't dance. I couldn't sing. I had no comedic talent. I, I, so I packed the idea of doing any acting in, otherwise, as I've said, slightly facetiously, in court. And I threw myself, I, remember, I rather regret, really, in a way, having thrown myself totally into my job because there were so many other things that I would like to have done. Uh, and I feel, looking back, I mean, obviously, I hope I helped when I was a barrister, I helped the judge to reach a fair decision on, on the cases in which I was involved. And when I was a judge, I hope I did impose fair decisions. And when I was in the Supreme Court, I hoped that I developed the law a bit and interpreted it clearly in my judgments. But I regard my general contribution, looking back as a fairly old man now, I regard it as rather prosaic. I just wish that I'd been more creative. I don't think mo most lawyers are creative. They're good at organizing things. They're good at collecting facts and collating them and presenting them clearly. And then, as I used to say, you've got the facts straight, you've then got to find the area of law into which they best fit. Mm -hmm. And so it's rather like a somebody at the sorting office in Mount Pleasant uh, mm -hmm. before it all became computerized. Yeah. Into, which, into which pigeonhole does this letter fit? Into which legal pigeonhole does this set of facts best fit? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's extremely difficult and interesting, but it isn't creative. And I just wish, looking back, that I had been a, a different sort of a person that could have designed a wonderful building like the one we're in here, <laughs> or, or created a beautiful garden, or written a symphony, or mm. done something like that, but it wasn't to be. Yeah, no, no. well, I think we can all share in those regrets. I know I've got a few. And so, uh, you know, my last one, Lord Wilson, is this. Is there a particular place you love to visit, either here in the UK or abroad, that really brings you joy when you go there? We're not well travelled for personal reasons. We've got commitments to one of our children that precludes much travel. And so I think I would nominate the North Cornish coast for my favourite place in the world. When I was a very young barrister doing divorce cases, and in those days, you had to turn up and persuade a crusty county court judge you were entitled to divorce, and you needed a barrister. And I was about the only barrister that used to go down to Cornwall to do undefended divorces, either mm -hmm. in Bombin or in Truro. And I went down every other week. And so I got to know Cornwall very well, and uh, I fell in love with it. 
I was, I'd been brought up in Devon, in Dartmouth. That was where my parents lived. But Cornwall in particular holds a, an, a special place in my affections. And which part of Cornwall? The North Cornish coast, from Bude down to St Agnes. Yeah, that is beautiful. I've certainly been to that part of Cornwall, and it, and it is breathtaking. And it is lovely. And one of the things which uh, I'll chat about with you offline is I know that uh, people in Cornwall have a very distinct identity. They have their own language, which I don't think that many people still speak, but they're very proud of it. And there's a very distinct identity, which I know that I've certainly found out about over the years. But Lord Wilson, thank you very, very much. I'm extremely thankful to you for being on this podcast and for the incredibly interesting insights you've given. It really is an honor for me to have done this podcast with you. I can only thank you again very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.